0: لو سهله مرحبا بكم في
1: Welcome to the Unboxed podcast.
2: <laughs> you, if you google me, it there's like me out of here. there's like tons of videos <laughs> of people doing these like S- gentle talkings. <laughs> and just scratch on the microphone. Maybe maybe we should change the theme. Feel obsessed. Podcast. <laughs> it's crazy. it's like a phenomenon.
1: <laughs> Amazing that's a nice way to start uh, start the episode. <laughs> Boom. So, ladies and gentlemen, we are here with another guest, Sinan Al-Khatib. Sinan Al-Khatib? Al-Khatib. Okay. (laughs) Sinan Al-Khatib. I've had the pleasure of meeting you uh, twice in the not-too-distant past. And, um, you know, I really enjoyed learning about your story, your experiences. Um, You seem to have, like... You know, you lived in different places, you've tried a lot of different things, so I'm really excited to have you with us on the podcast.
2: Well, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for
1: having me. I appreciate you inviting me. righty, let's get into this. Are you ready? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, uh, why don't we kick things off with a quick uh, intro from your end, just so I um, guess they're more familiar with your story. Uh, sure. I I was born
2: in Jordan. I lived there for just one year, and then we moved to Saudi Arabia. I lived in first in Medina, and then in Mecca, and then uh, we decided to move to Columbus, Ohio, a very natural (laughs) extension. (laughs) And uh, we lived there for a year, and then we moved to Denver, another year, and then uh, we moved to Calgary, to Canada, and then by the time I was seven, then we moved to Toronto, and that was the seventh city. I think by the time I was seven. And uh, then finally I lived in Toronto for about 12 years. Uh, I went to University of Toronto. I studied psychoanalytic theory and then um, packed my bags again, moved to New York City and uh, went to law school there. I practiced law for about five years and then I got into investment banking. I was there for a couple of years and the bank that I worked with worked with a lot of uh, Venture back companies and entrepreneurs, and I got to meet a lot of these CEOs and venture capitalists, and sort of they parlayed me into the entrepreneurial scene. and, and In New York City, it was sort of at the time when it was blowing up and becoming the next Silicon Valley in, in the United States. And so, uh, from there, I got much more involved in in business, and never never looked back, and never wanted an office job again. Um, and then uh, the last iteration was moving to the Middle East, where uh, you know I had a friend who. Suggested to come do businesses similar to the ones I was doing in New York, but do, it, do them in the Middle East, and the first stop was in Cairo, but uh, it was a, in a rather funny year, 2011, and so uh, we had all sorts of fascinating experiences and encounters, uh, spent another year there, but then found it very challenging to continue, moved to Riyadh, I lived there for two and a half years, uh, had some businesses there as well, and then came to Bahrain as my sanctuary and fell in love <laughs> and never left.
1: There's so many questions that came up as you were uh, going through that, <laughs> <laughs> that intro. I don't know where to Why? start. Why? Uh, <laughs> so, so when I was seven, I, I moved from uh, Saudi to Bahrain, and that was the only move. But uh, moving wasn't tough, you know. I lost. I, I don't know. It was hard for me to adapt to this new culture um, and make new friends. What's it like as a kid growing up in so many different places?
2: So I I I can't speak for everybody who's moved plenty, but I I never I never was somebody who looked backward. I've always been somebody who's looking forward, and so I never felt super attached to to the where it was that I was in the past. I was always looking about well, what am I going to do now with with what's in the future, and and maybe because we were moving every single year. Uh, I didn't have time to think about that being weird, and it was so consistent. Every year we left somewhere. Like it's just, if we didn't move, we'd be like, why aren't we moving? <laughs> you know, it would probably be the opposite way. And so, so I, I, I don't, re- I don't ever remember that being a taxing point on me. I, I feel like, you know, uh, I look now at, you know. People who are in my family who if, if if they're moving now or they would have to do a million calculations about their kids and how their kids <laughs> feel about it i 'm like i don't think my parents did those calculations <laughs> It was just like we're leaving so so the, the 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 calculus for me was quite different i I never felt that that it was problematic and in in the aggregate, I would probably look back and say you know uh, that, is, that has shaped me to be very open minded, tolerant, and, and comfortable with, with huge varieties of experiences, which I think is good.
0: In terms of um, having an identity, so I'm sure it seems that you formed your own identity, which is cool. But at the same time, I feel like a lot of, or a part of our identity comes from uh, our, our culture. I feel like you have a very different take on that just because you've been in so many different cultures. So what what do you feel like you belong to? If that's if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, no, definitely. I I think I think it's a tough one because uh, y- you you might not feel as 100% immersed in one thing as a person who was born and raised in and stayed put in that one location. Um I feel much more like Little pieces of me come from different places, more like a mosaic, yeah. um, and uh, uh, and to some extent an observer. Uh, sometimes when you've when you've lived in so many different contexts, and you, and you, you might always feel like you're looking in as to what's happening with with the folks in the area that you're living in at that moment, mm-hmm. and not necessarily always feel like you're you're them. Um, so that that's a that's a bit sort of different than most people who just grew up in a neighborhood and and, and stayed there their whole lives. Um, but but I would also say to you that um, maybe the nature of what I found important changed which is I looked more for people who had similar values and similar intellectual curiosity and si- similar in- international focus and those people could have come from any country and I find myself connecting with them more so than what is my nationality or passport or ethnic origin and so you can I could be in in any country in the world, and there's some segment of that society that matches those values, and those are, those are people that I feel more affinity towards. Okay,
1: it's beautiful. Beautiful indeed. And and so you you ended up studying psychoanalytic theory. Is you that know, am I getting that right? Y- you are. <laughs> tell, us, tell us more.
2: Um, <laughs> what is that? So that, that's before law school, right? Before law school. <coughs> uh, in, in North America, you, you, would, you would do an undergraduate degree before you go to law school, so I had to figure out what it is I wanted to study. Uh, but the thing that fascinated me about it was, if I were to summarize, it's sort of the inner relationship between the conscious and the unconscious mind. And for me always, it was, it was a struggle to take things on face value. And I always wanted to look at what is what is the underlying thing and what, what's, what's, what's driving that sensation, that conviction, that belief in anything that I, I'm doing or other people are doing. And studying psychoanalytic theory was a, a, a giant eye-opening experience towards what motivates human beings, what, what's driving somebody to do something and and going beyond just conscious thoughts and saying, Let's look at the unconscious mind in those dynamics, whether it's in your dream state, whether it's in, you know, looking at how a child is acting from, uh, from a position of his id rather than his ego. And, and understanding all of the, those dynamics was something just incredibly fascinating to me. As somebody who was very into psychology, who was very into, was very into uh, understanding why people do the things they do. Wow.
1: And so I, I was, um, before I came here, I was interacting with some of my little cousins. And um, I, one of my aunts was saying that babies don't develop a sense of ego until they're, I think, maybe three or four years old. And and yeah, the thought of being able to operate without a sense of ego seems fascinating. Like, uh,
2: well, when when they're first born, uh, you know, some might argue that they don't actually acknowledge another. Mm. Uh, at, at right. First, oh, it can't even yeah, separate. Yeah. Between, at fir- the, at right, first right, existence, right. it's just them. And mm. uh, you know, some arguments are made that the initial experience that there is an other is when they're hungry and the breastfeeding doesn't come on demand that's the first time that they experience that they want something and there's some outside factor that's not allowing them to get what they want on demand and then they're they're like oh well I'm not the only one around here yeah, I guess yeah, some, yeah. somebody else has to chime in so true. so it, it takes a while until the, the the experience changes from it's just me to mm-hmm. There's an outside world and, you know, it, it disappoints me. It doesn't show up what I want. And, yeah, yeah, and then yeah, I develop yeah. my own ego and,
1: and the rest, of, you know, wow. of the story. Yeah. And so, so it's not a very common field to study. Is it something you'd recommend to other people? Is it something you um, enjoyed studying?
2: Well, you know, there's a few paths to take. I mean, if you are very serious about it as a vocation, then you would probably have to push it all the way through to like graduate studies and PhD, and, and, and maybe get into clinical work so that you can have a practice and um, and and that. Then you're taking taking the path of you want it to be your job or or mm-hmm. form of, of, of work for you. Um, that was not what was interesting right. to me. I, I had no interest to be a therapist, or I have no interest to be a, a psychiatrist or a, or a psychologist or any of those areas was not what I wanted, but the reason i liked it is because it touches on points of origin questions right so so it was very interdisciplinary we we looked at religion through a psychoanalytic perspective we looked at philosophy through a psychoanalytic perspective we looked at psychology through a psychoanalytic perspective and so so it it allowed me a huge purview into so many different areas and fields that were of interest to me With a lot of the questions starting with, you know, why are human beings feeling that way? Why are they wanting these things? Um, And it sort of actually fostered one of my biggest interests in life, which is, you know, natural selection theory and evolutionary psychology, which was mind-blowing to me when I I started learning more about that and, and helped actually... Uh, untangle lots of knots that were in my head when i began to understand so much more about why people would want to do these things or what's motivating human beings and so those root getting to those root causes root questions was something that was extremely important to me um but didn't it didn't translate into a vocation i thought i think it's just it was an important aspect of self-development of growing as a person and and
1: yeah very interesting i remember last time we talked you you said you'd look back at your life and say you know there's the part before i knew about the theory of selection <laughs> <laughs> <and> the <part laughs> after. that's how, how influential it was and uh, i agree it's it's uh yeah pretty mind-blowing when you come to think about it um curious to hear what uh, do you think religion looks like from a psychoanalytic perspective not not necessarily your views just like from that perspective Wh- what does it mean to look at something from a psychoanalytic uh, perspective so you're asking why and, and then what, like what, how, how does, how do you do something like that? Oof, there's
2: <laughs> lots to talk about there, but I, I would say, uh, you know, <clears throat> of significance is, is, what is motivating somebody? You know, wh- why is it that somebody feels motivated towards something, to believe in something? Um, the the, the storylines also of religion, become very uh, flushed out in psychoanalytic discussion of uh, when you look at um, sort of a father figure, mm-hmm. when you look at a a religious leader, when you look at um, how uh, the structure of the stories are playing out and there's, there's a repetitiveness to them or at least a pattern to a lot of them, uh, those archetypes and those storylines um, are they deep rooted in the psyche of man are they are they things that are intrinsic to us or are they uh, reactions to needs that we have those are the kinds of starting point questions that are going to be there Um, separately i would also talk about uh, things like uh, people's need for for brotherhood people's needs for communion Mm -hmm. people's needs for all of these types of things Uh, how much of that is coming from uh, uh, deep psychological dynamics that we have from evolutionary aspects of how we were uh, living hundreds of thousands of years, of, years ago, um, and, and how much of it is coming from sort of a, a, a newly morphed society that we are a part of, mm-hmm. and and those two are kind of getting meshed together right now, and, and we get the expressions that we are currently getting. Yeah.
1: So uh, so then uh, and do you feel like this this field of study uh, i mean helps you? you you mentioned like you weren't interested in in practicing in this field but uh I feel i feel like you you got a lot of take out takeaway like uh, value from it in terms of how it shaped your views how you look at things uh, do you feel like it it helped you in in the business world uh, as an entrepreneur as a decision maker or or do you do you think it's more um sort of just shaping views in general and
2: well it certainly makes me not take things for granted mm. uh, w- because anytime i'm looking at something i don't look at it at face value anymore it's it's what's the underlying what's mm. the motivating aspect underneath that and I- if you start looking at things in in that deeper fashion yeah. i think it'll assist you in anything that you're right. doing e- even to to the extent of do you have a conflict with somebody mm so often you have a conflict with somebody, whether it's in business or or at work or whatever it is, and you think it's about X, Y, Z, but that's only because you're looking at it at a superficial level. Mm But if you if you work on developing your EQ, your emotional quotient and understanding what the other person is Mm. experiencing from their subjective reality and dig a little bit deeper and using that toolkit that you have of I don't just take things on face value. I want to I want to always dig a little bit deeper. You begin to discover a whole bunch of things that you didn't realize about what that other person's feeling and what they're thinking. And when when you start to to unravel those those knots, uh, your experience with people changes significantly.
0: Um, you talked about your interest in evolution and natural selection. So I'm, I'm kind of curious about the connection between that and this whole idea of uh, what's our motivators, what's our needs, where are things coming from? Mm. So could you dig a little deeper into that?
2: Yeah, so uh, most of our lives we were living in the African savanna, and we were hunter-gatherers. And we were facing a certain kind of dynamic right there is a certain kind of environment that we're living in and over the course of very long periods of time uh, evolution would have crafted us to or it would have selected from us behaviors that were in the best interest of what that environment uh, or that condition or circumstance would favor and so evolution kept doing that for a long time and on a very slow pace it doesn't operate quickly and then at some point we, as a, as a as a species, uh, really took off in terms of our ability to to procreate, to dominate the world, to to uh, uh, domesticate plants and animals, to do lots of things that we no longer uh, uh, were dying off. We were able; everyone was able to to mostly procreate and keep their kids around and pass their genes on. Um, and we developed a society and and we developed modern civilization, but all of those things actually were a very short period of time so so modern civilization you know is five thousand years if you stretched it it 's a few more thousand years more than that we 've been a- around in one way or another for a lot longer than that, but the genetic disposition that we have is the same roughly the same genetic disposition we had a few hundred thousand years ago that that hasn 't changed so the impulses you would have while roaming the African savannah as a hunter-gatherer, those impulses remain inside of you, genetically speaking. Mm-hmm. But the context in which they are expressed is vastly different. You're now in Tokyo or you're in... Hong Kong or you're in Senegal or wherever you are they don't they don't match up to what that experience was a few hundred thousand years ago and so there's all sorts of misfiring there's all sorts of impulses and inclinations that you genetically have that are landing on situations that are vastly different than what they're used to landing
1: on right right. like being indoors all day or never seeing the sun sure. and getting restless um, not getting enough physical activity which was key a key part of our daily lives in the past I'm sure
2: I'll, I'll um, give you I'll give you some some interesting hints of uh-huh. of, of ways to think about this. For example, um, you look at something like uh, sibling rivalry. Okay, okay, uh, you might notice that siblings are constantly squabbling with their parents about uh. details, like oh he got more than half the chocolate bar, yes, he yes, took yes. this from me, and just constantly squabbling about these little small details. But if a bully came to to aggress your sibling, all of a sudden you become hyper defensive of your sibling, right? It's like where did all that love and, and goodwill go when you were arguing about the chocolate? And so so, you know, some people craft pretty clever evolutionary arguments as to why that's the case. Because when you as a as a species are competing with your sibling for resources from your parents and you are 100% of your genes and your sibling is only 50% of your genes, you favor yourself. Mm. So you want to make sure you get the worm, mm. you get the chocolate, you get all of these things to sustain yourself. Your hope is that your 50% gene, which is your sibling, just sticks around. Yeah. He doesn't have to thrive. <laughs> yeah. but, but your 100%, which is you, has to thrive. Right. But the second a foreigner shows up, a bully, who is 0% of your genes, the priority goes back to your fifty percent, which is your sibling, yeah. from a genetic standpoint, and so you fight the bully to the death. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so you, you, it's really it's it's a phenomenally interesting way to explain why these dynamics are happening. But you'll see them repeated in so many different sibling situations. But there, you know, an argument, a strong argument, can be made that these are coming from evolutionary dynamics.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that's that's really fascinating when you break it down like that. I um at this phase where i looked into behavioral economics and um i don't they don't i mean it doesn't seem to be broken down quite as directly but they um, it's interesting how you know economists or or even businessmen often find ways to sort of find vulnerabilities in in the way we think or uh view things and um uh, uh, exploit it or, or try to you know benefit from it and uh, it's things that we don't aren't able to consciously see um but we're unconsciously we're constantly being affected by these uh, these parameters whether we like it or not and um, i think being aware of, of things like this is uh can only can only help you if you want to analyze what's going on get to know other people better uh make better decisions uh yeah yeah what do you think noro
0: and I'm also wondering uh, since you know we're, we're, we're trying to get into also the topic of entrepreneurship uh, with this background which and uh, you have a background that's unique uh, how has that played into how you do business and how you've created your businesses
2: well I would say th- th- for me personally there's been a huge evolution of uh, how I understand what is a successful business person or mm-hmm. a business leader and um, you know when, when I was younger I, I think it, the focus was more on you know is, is somebody a real go-getter is, are they really aggressive are they charismatic are they do they have that sort of uh, uh, leadership quality appearance to them um, and, and and sort of the charisma and the drive being the push to 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 excelling mm-hmm. uh, but as I as I saw oftentimes that not working, <laughs> I discovered that you know all the IQ in the world and all of that um, charisma and charm doesn't necessarily lead you to the promised land. And the, the simple reason is doing meaningfully uh, sized businesses that can grow require a team and require you to get lots of people To believe in your vision to believe in what you're doing to believe in you and to get them pumped up and rallied around that idea and to have a a singular focus as a unit and drive towards it there's no way in heck that they're going to do that wholeheartedly if you haven't checked all sorts of important boxes on the eq front which is getting buy-in from the people that you work with um, and And I felt miserably at this i 'm telling you all of these things uh, subsequent to doing them wrongly because my instincts were never correct on these things um and and so I undercommunicated i i always i took a more sort of a military approach, which is you know on a need to know basis yeah. if i 'm your boss, why should I tell you what what 's not mm. your business to know? But I began to realize that people come to work not just to collect a salary but you know there are people who are actually oftentimes seeing you more than they see their their own families right, yeah. and so they're looking to garner meaning from there as well and if you're not providing them a sense of belonging a sense of of ownership in the process um if you are if you're not engaging them to share their ideas and to feel creative and to feel that they are contributing and cultivating and giving them affirmation towards those things Fat chance that they're running with you to that dream that you have, mm-hmm. and so so developing the EQ side of it is incredibly important. And uh, and at least in my personal experiences was was shortchanged in my earlier career and getting slowly better.
1: Oh, wow. I mean, I completely agree. I think people can get value in a lot of different ways. One of them is monetary, of course, and it's the easiest one to sort of conceptualize, but. There's the pleasure in dealing with someone who is fun to deal with. There's the um, learning and education that comes through doing something different or slightly outside your comfort zone. And if you can figure out how to push someone in the right ways, you're giving them value there. If your working culture is a certain way, I think, you know, all of these things can can, uh, provide value that... Uh, it's, it's it's different to, to the value you get from from a paycheck and um yeah I, how
2: i i i would add something i think important mm. that is regionally relevant okay which is we have a bit of a challenge in this part of the world because an enormous portion of the workforce is outsourced and by definition, that results in a, a, a greater probability of transactional work rather than relationship-based work. And in, in other countries where you don't have as much of an expat population, um, everybody to some extent is still part of the community and right. is there for the long run right. and right. has to continue being in that environment for the duration of their life. Um, when, you, when you nix that, you have warp dynamics that come out of it. That's and, a really and, good point. And those are some yeah. very big challenges here uh, that we face. That uh, in a lot of other places, you 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 don't see these kinds
1: of uh, dynamics. Right, right. And maybe when we dive a bit more into the types of businesses you're working on, mm-hmm. I think you'll be able to shed a lot more light on, you know, the um, things you need to be watch out for, the different cultures mm-hmm. and the different, you know, sensitivities. Yeah, that's coming you know, to play and all sure. that. So, uh, yeah, I'm excited to dive into that.
0: So I'm also wondering about something. I'm wondering about what gives people a sense of belonging. So as someone who has moved around mm. quite a bit, um, even though you've been in different places for, for relatively short amounts of time, have you been able to feel a sense of belonging in the places that you were in? And if so, what made you feel that way?
2: So I, I think I alluded to it uh, earlier. Mm. It's... Um, What's giving me personally the, the sense of belonging is rarely the, the soil or the land or mm-hmm. the buildings or, or what's there. Mm-hmm. Um, what gives me a, a much greater sense of connectivity is uh, people with the same value structures or people with the same intellectual curiosity. Because when I see other people as excited i am to to explore the world or i i see somebody else as open-minded as i am not Mm -hmm. to shoot down ideas and 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 not give things a chance and and willing to get out of their comfort zone when i see those things i get super excited to meet that person regardless of who he is that gives me belonging because when i see those ideas i feel like i'm in the right spot I feel like those are the folks that I need to be around because that gives me energy, gets me pumped up and makes me feel like those are people who share my interests. Those are the people who I want to kind of grow with and, and be around. And And I think if I'm around those types of people, I'm more likely to become the person that I hope to be.
0: Right. It's Because as you said, we have this expat. Um, we have a lot of expats. And, you know, we wonder why they don't feel that sense of belonging. And perhaps... You know, just that conversation, just that open conversation, and interest in in them as people, and then getting them involved could could be an answer to a lot of the issues that business owners uh, face. Yeah, I mean, yeah. W- what
2: one of the big challenges, um, and 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 really the the majority of the expat community, and what I'm referring mm-hmm. to are 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 the ones who are coming for um, uh, from sort of labor-based work right. or, or service-oriented jobs. Um, I'm, I'm not talking about the very few privileged expats right. coming from existingly privileged places. I'm talking about the, the, the other side of the equation. Um, one of the differences is that they don't have a path to staying here. They don't have a path to retiring, to getting what the equivalent of a green card is in the United States. And now some countries here regionally are starting to explore those ideas. Mm-hmm. And for, for certain members of those groups, they're trying to find ways to give, give them a path for staying longer. Okay. But it's, it's in your not knowing that you have a long-term future somewhere that your behavior changes and the more you know that you're going you have the ability to stay longer or you can become a member of a society the more likely you're going to do your calculations differently because you you feel like you you can be held accountable forever for what you do you have a reputational okay. risk you have you have a a, a professional uh, 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 people in the, your professional society are aware of who you are and what you do so you're, you're very careful about how you conduct yourself because there's a long term aspect to it but that's a delicate thing in this part of the world because it's not, it's not quite clear how much uh, acceptance there is at, at the moment or how much flexibility there is for, for folks who are not from here to continue living here after they are done their work
1: So since we're lingering around this topic, I think it would be really, uh, it's a good time to sort of shed light on what you're doing in this space. So would you mind uh, telling us a bit about, uh, you know, the recent work that you're doing? Yeah, uh, so
2: so roughly speaking, I think, you know, there's a lot of exciting things to be done in this part of the world because I think uh, um, societies in transition uh, produce a lot of opportunity. Uh, regardless of where we are in a mic, you know macroeconomic cycle, there, there, there are ups, there are downs. Right. Put that aside, but <clears throat> I feel, and in speaking to a lot of uh, uh, people in, from different countries in the region, we're in a transformative moment, and and I think that that's a huge thing. It's it's a very exciting thing to be a part of a transformative moment. Most societies are static, and like not much is going on for long periods of time. Uh, here in here in this part of the world, I feel like there is there is bubbling inside a desire for lots of interesting things to come in and and i'm seeing meaningful changes certainly um uh, in, in big countries like saudi arabia you're seeing enormous interesting ch- changes that are happening that represent lots of opportunity that represent lots of of potential impossibility um and that excites me and and i and i and i think that uh it's less important where you are and it's much more important what is the rate of change. Mm-hmm. And if, if you're already at the top and you're static, that's kind of boring. Right. And <laughs> if you're not at the top, but the dynamism of change is, yeah, is, yeah. is very much there. That's the most exciting thing in the world. Yeah, yeah. And so the rate of change is what I would pursue. So that, that's, you know, overarchingly what excites me about being in this part of the world that I feel that that's there. Um, so for me personally, I, uh, I you know I have a, v- a variety of different initiatives that I work on. I've, I've historically been in the F&B business uh, and invested in, in different restaurant concepts here. Um, but more recently, I found that a lot of um, uh, uh, technology companies and venture back companies uh, are opening up in Bahrain and in the GCC at large, and a lot of funding is going inside of it. And I think. Family offices, venture firms are starting to really believe in the space, and we've had a few really uh, good-sized exits that are that are that are showing potential. And um, I kind of found myself in a supporting capacity of saying, "Hey, how can we look at these venture-backed companies that have lots of money that has that have been raised? How do we support them with the, providing them business services?" Mm-hmm. and um, Uh, They're they're currently flush with lots of money and uh, and and they want to grow fast and they want to go grow super fast and they can't do everything right. There's a core competency, and so a lot of them are um, technology companies. And so you look at the 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 nature of their staff, and you'll see you know social media directors and marketing people and engineers and, and and the folks that you would expect to see in a tech company but some of them require enormous amounts of manpower to execute on whatever it is that their app is providing and that's where where we came in and we said hey we think we could be a, provide solutions for these businesses um especially in areas that are not their core competency and be able to provide them local know-how and be able to, to, be, uh, to deliver for them a solution on, on, on the labor front or the manpower front. And that's, uh, that's proven to be, I think, a, a very good idea because they're, they're not interested in, in handling that side of the business. They want to maintain their focus on, on the tech side. Mm-hmm.
1: And are you, are you s- focusing specifically on certain areas, w- with it, whether construction or deliveries, or are you, are you sort of looking at wherever you can add value? it's it's more
2: related to who's interested in what i have to offer mm-hmm. um and currently uh we are able to bring large numbers of people who are able to cover things like uh, uh cleaning services delivery functionality um packers uh, baggers um uh, uh, anything along those lines of, of, of workers, we're able to bring large numbers of them and be able to understand the local dynamics and the local laws on how to how to appropriately manage them in a, in a correct way, um, that we relieve a lot of the headache for the tech company who's deciding to open in Bahrain and, and get started over here from having to deal with lots of issues that need lots of you know, years of understanding. Wh- how do you create the correct contract? How do you uh, make sure that you're operating correctly under the the LMRA or under the various uh, uh, agencies in Bahrain that that regulate all of this stuff? So, that, so learning the tricks of the trade takes a long time. It, it, it you know, I've been here five, six years, and and it, and the the agreements that I have and the nature of what I tell an employee before they arrive has so drastically changed and become for the better of both me and the employee, because there's far greater clarity between us mm-hmm. that relative to day one, I was clueless. And so those, these these firms don't have time for five to six years of learning the, <laughs> yeah. the, 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 the lay of the land. So we're, we're a fantastic catalyst for just from day one, getting it going, huge numbers, getting it done right, and being able to control the environments correctly, making sure that all the sensitivities and the dynamics of different ethnicities and nationalities are understood because that's a, that's a whole can of worms by itself.
1: Yeah. It's, it's really interesting when you sort of look at our, our economy from a m- macro level and look at, um, you know, where, where does, where, does where does our, who helps us build our country, a lot of our business. And, and if you look at the foundation, like the, Core aspects: the um, people who are actually providing services, inter- interfacing with people, who are building things, who are uh, maintaining things. You, you know, we're we're a society that heavily relies on um, foreign laborers to, to help us, and it's. Uh, I find it really interesting that you found a niche and and you know focusing on that area and facilitating this this process. Yeah, do you have something do you have something?
0: Yeah, I, so I, I'm not very familiar with the details of the laws and regulations, but Siani, I'm sure as you dug deeper into it, you learned more and more. And you know, I I don't want to go I I'm not asking you to go into critique mode of what gaps we currently have in this area, but I definitely know that there are gaps. So what I'm going to ask you is how are you you know, doing things differently? What are the, actually, yeah, I'm just going to ask you, what are the gaps that you've identified? (laughs) Because I think, I don't know how sensitive that is, but there's definitely, anyone can know, like sometimes I find myself wondering, like do they go through, you know, the whole vetting process before bringing someone? Uh, Do they talk to them? Do they understand what they're here to do? What what kind of things that they're going to be working on? Challenges that they might be, is is there that rapport between the employer and the employee?
2: So uh, it's hard to gloss over it as you know here are three points and then we'll solve yeah. the problem because you're, you're talking about a few million people in our yeah. just in our part of the world uh who are who are being brought from other countries and uh, many of them are being brought from very different places that that are contrast greatly to what we do here or how we live our life here and so the room for Misinterpretation, the room for miscommunication, the room for misunderstanding is not small, uh, and that's a very big challenge for 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 the business to be able to to minimize those things because it's actually in the be, it's in the best interest of the business to have transparency and clarity, mm-hmm. so that when employees come, there's no surprise, right? And the surprise is where the problem begins, and so the more you understand what are their concerns, what are the kinds of problems that they would have the more likely you'll be able to communicate that in advance to them and make sure that they're comfortable with the dynamics that they're coming into. Mm-hmm. Um, there are gaps as to your question for gaps. There's definitely gaps and major policy questions that need to be addressed. And the, the questions can't ever be addressed from a one-sided perspective. It's not just, hey, what's what, what can we do just for the business or what can we just do for the employee? Right. It, it, there always has to be a balance between those things so that you can you can get a a system that has equilibrium and and is harmonious. Mm -hmm. Uh, But one of the major issues that you'll find is um, you will bring a worker from abroad um, where when you're bringing the worker, the, the, the salaries that you're negotiating are competitive to what he has in his local area right that's what you lure him with so whatever he's currently making you're going to provide him a substantial amount more mm-hmm. so that he can agree to come to a foreign jurisdiction and and, and operate with mm-hmm. you but whatever the more is it might still be less than what he could get in the local market here okay you, you follow me yeah so 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 if he's making x and you offered him 2x and then somebody here locally is willing to give them 3x, okay. there lies the problem. And so so the the question of them uh, respecting the, the contract or the agreement forms that say, I'm going to give you 2x, you used to make 1x, I'm going to give you 2x, but, but when they arrive, they immediately get excited and say, hey, somebody else is willing to give me 3x, but the guy giving you 3x is not who brought you and not who you signed the right. agreement with. There are lots of problems associated with with what I just mentioned, and I think policymakers need to really sit down carefully and think about how do you make sure that there is a balance between all the various stakeholders in that equation that's fair. But but as as it is right now, there's lots of turmoil and, and problems in the business community and employees as it relates to that.
0: So in terms of what role you'd be or your company would be playing, are you just the middleman who decides on these things from a company standpoint? Do you help them with these decisions or?
2: Yeah. So so we we bring lots of people from abroad Mm -hmm. and what we are doing is going to uh, uh, companies who don't want to manage the large labor force and and we're saying to them we will be the provider for you so we will be able to give you 50 or 100 employees overnight to to support you those employees legally are under our umbrella so the relationship legally is with us but we are okay. effectually al- allowed to uh, uh, um, let a company utilize those staff for whatever services that we have contracted to, to okay. provide. So
0: in terms of you know, how much, for example, they're getting paid and what kind of benefits they have, do you decide that? Or yes. does the company? Okay, No, no,
2: we, we we're deciding that. But the, the, the problem becomes, forget all of those players, then another player in the marketplace, yeah. somebody completely unrelated to this dynamic, is willing to give that person more the question of should the employee be allowed to just disconnect and walk away even though you've spent resources and effort Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and signed a contract with that employee to bring him uh, to our part of the world should he be allowed to just walk away from that with no repercussions and consequences that's the key issue and and how much of how much are you going to hold him accountable and how much of it should be freedom of access and his ability to just go where he pleases that balance is a delicate one that has a lot of questions
1: (laughs) How do you feel about localization? Like, for example, Bahrainization, Saudiization. How do you, how do you perceive that concept? Uh,
2: the quick answer: huge fan. We, we need to completely sorry. change how we think about things and who works in, uh-huh. in our part of the world and the whole social fabric <laughs> of of self responsibility and uh-huh. self determination. Uh, it's. It's going to come whether we want it or not.
1: So, so, so what I'm specifically referring to is like acts by the government or incentives to um, incentivize businesses to hire more locals as opposed to going right. with expats. The, the gov- uh, in contrast to the concept of more locals working or being productive. Uh, I just want to make that distinction. So, so
2: I, I think the government is doing a great job. In terms of providing incentives, and mm-hmm. we are—I've been the ben- beneficiary of those incentives, and I've mm-hmm. wanted to hire locals. And the governments of, you know, S- Saudi or Bahrain have have supported initiatives to to hire locals, and that 100% needs to be the direction of society. Mm-hmm. So w- what's being done is 100% correct. Where I would add advice or mm-hmm. a suggestion is we need to start very early in investing in our youth so that they don't need a subsidy. Right right, right. right. So what why should the government spend money to subsidize a local when we should just build the local to be of high value? Absolutely. Right? And so absolutely. it should start early on where w- we as a, the, a society here are saying, no, we, we need to make sure that our education system is teaching the youth the correct skills for what the labor market needs. Mm-hmm. We need to make sure that the work ethic mm-hmm. is there, that we get out of the culture of you know, your daddy pays for everything or somebody's gonna subsidize you or somebody's gonna hand it to you. Yeah, we yeah. need to completely get out of that state of mind and become self-reliant and have that culture mm-hmm. of, of self-determination because then you're gonna find the government doesn't need to subsidize anything. People will want to hire you really because you're me. a great worker, because you have the correct skills and what you know how to do matches up to the labor
1: market. Needs. Yeah, I, I mean, I, c- I couldn't agree with you more with the long-term sort of end, end goal. That would be amazing. But, uh, you know, I feel like the trend in uh, regionally now is, is sort of pushed towards more and more incentives. And um, uh, personally, I don't know if... I don't feel entirely comfortable with that because um, I, the flip side, I guess, is that um, locals feel like they're they have this inherent value mm. that just comes from being a local mm-hmm. and it gives them a free pass to just uh, sit around and not necessarily you know be a productive member of, of a team or just them being there is reducing the overheads of the company and um that 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 um i, I don't see that as an aligned incentive so that that worries me a bit this trend of sort of uh, well
2: well given the choice between the two investing early in them is the better one absolutely, absolutely. It, it, but but that's a long term one right like that's right, a generational that cycle yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a somebody has to get into the to the curriculum and say hey what are we teaching people in grade five you know yeah. and saying what are they learning by the time they exit high school by the time they exit a, a vocational school what do they actually know how to do that's relevant to the needs of the labor market and so so in, investing in them early is the best way and we should be doing that but but philosophically, yeah. the wake-up call that has happened, I think, in the past few years, which is the people of this society need to support their own society, is the correct one. Yeah. And that's how how now the discussion of how to get there, there might be different ways and debates, but yeah, yeah, yeah. At, at least we're now all on the same page that that needs to happen. Yeah, yeah. And it's unsustainable otherwise, because the, the, the size of the populations have become so big that... You know, a, a welfare state is unsustainable. You right, have you right, have right. societies where half of half of the the government um, uh, money is essentially going to government payroll, mm-hmm. and that's that's an that's an extraordinarily high number.
1: Right, 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 right. Very interesting.
0: I know. So, okay, so here's my thought, though. So as you know, as a you know, as Saudi or a Bahraini or whatever. If I know that I was getting hired to fulfill a quota, I wouldn't feel very good about myself. It's the it's similar to, so I know that uh, Mo, you mentioned that um, you know there's that there's gonna be that mentality of I know I'm gonna get hired because I'm Saudi or Bahraini or what or whatever. But on the flip side, when you know that you're getting hired just for that, it just doesn't feel good. It's like, as a female, when someone thinks that I got hired or go, I got chosen for something because I'm a female. It's that kind of the same feeling. So, so, so to to the female, the <laughs> I just slipped it in there. <laughs> but, but it's the same thing. So my hope is um, it, it's that feeling that comes that, no, I want to earn this. And my hope is that that's where, you know, the new generation is heading towards wanting to earn what they have. Yeah. And I think I do see that happening somehow. They're working really hard. They're they're moving towards that. I I think, and my from what I'm, I've been seeing so far.
2: Well, I mean, there, there's a macro picture and a micro picture. On yeah. on the micro front, it might feel uncomfortable or less good that somebody is giving you something because of a uh, not a merit based right. benefit. Right. But on the macro level. Look how look at the percentage of females that are now working in Saudi Arabia le- relative to 20 years ago. So sometimes you just got to have to push everybody <laughs> in and just be like this is the way it's going to be guys, yeah. get going. And it, and it might take a cycle or two to flush it out, but yeah. but in in the greater scheme of things, it's 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 getting people from sitting down doing nothing to being uh, productive members That's of society true. and doing something useful, even if it's not coming in our ideal way. Again, all things being equal, I wish we could start from the beginning, grade one, you know, what are you learning? What are the, what are the, what's your work ethic like? But, but there, there are, there are sort of reminences of culture there, Mm -hmm. you know, of, you know, whether it's tribal, whether it's religious, whether it's uh, the the social contract with the state, Mm -hmm. all of those dynamics historically in a lot of parts of this world have been reliant on somebody above you to take care of you. There's a guardianship, there's a, right. a culture of somebody takes care of you. Somebody sorts you out. And, and unfortunately, it can create a sense of entitlement that you need to be sorted out. Mm-hmm. It makes you passive. It makes you feel that somebody mm-hmm. is responsible for your well-being. Um, and, and it was probably a lot easier to manage when the numbers are small. Fast forward and you multiply and you have millions <laughs> And the birth rates were enormous in the past twenty, thirty years, and that's just not sustainable anymore. Right. And and it's become much more of a nation state, and you have an enormous number of people, mm-hmm. and you have to default back to the rest of the world, which is people need to work, right. people need to be self determine their their lives and be able to to add value to the to the labor market in order in order to extract a living. Uh,
0: I'm, I just thought of a question. So since you've been around, uh, we have that kind of sense of entitlement here. Have you seen other forms of entitlement in other parts of the world that might be a little bit different but also could hinder progress?
2: Well, I mean, I, I think just the very idea of entitlement is problematic no matter where you go, right? Like, so the second somebody thinks that they just automatically deserve to get something, it's a problem because you 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 haven't set yourself up to be hungry, right? And, and hunger is the best spice. I mean, that's the thing that gets you rocking and moving. Mm -hmm. Uh, Certainly my life story is built on hunger. And it was, it was, I never felt entitled to anything. I always felt like if you wanted something, you got to move to go and, and make the circumstances to deserve that and to get it. And you may or may not get it. Life can, it can even be unfair and you have to have tolerance Mm for that and have to go back in and try again so so that persistence and and that desire has to be something self-generated it's really hard to inject it in somebody okay. and so no matter which society you're living in if you wake up in the morning and your assumption is somebody has to give me something then you're gonna have a hard time your assumption when you wake up in the morning is I have to go and sort my affairs. Right. I have to go and take care of business. And that, that's a life philosophy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and no matter where you go in your life, you'll be well served with with that perspective. And the, the entitlement perspective, I, it, it has no longevity, it has no sustainability, And yeah. it, and I don't think it has any real self-satisfaction. At the end of the day, what's just spoon-fed to you never tastes that good. It's the one that you went and hunted, the one you went and, 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 and grew out in the land and sweated outside in the sun and, and, and picked it when it, was, when it was ripe. Those are the things that you're going to relish in far yeah, more. So right. it's better off for you both on an individual level and certainly on a societal level. If you have a bunch of doers in your society, you're going to find your society taking a different shape and form quickly.
1: Beautiful. It sort of sounds like the fundamental difference between socialism and, and maybe capitalism. Like a socialist point of view might be you know what does the society owe me and and the capitalist view might be like how can i add value to others to to get value in exchange and i love it and um to add to that one of the one of the reasons i look up to you and, and i'm sort of excited to have you here is because you've uh you've been successful at doing uh, doing starting a business over uh, several times not more than just once and it's not an easy thing starting a business i think is one of the most difficult things you can try to do Uh, talk to us about your experiences starting businesses um, from scratch
2: uh, this podcast is for 40 hours. How much time have you got? <laughs> <Okay>. um, <laughs> so, I, <laughs> I'll try I to mean, summarize. B- b-
1: so before, uh, I, I know when you came to Bahrain, you, you got involved in the F&B industry. Mm-hmm. Have you tried starting businesses um, when back when you were in Canada or, or in the U.S.?
2: So so, let me start from the beginning about starting a business. Starting a business is a messy affair. Okay. Um, you... You are, first of all, statistically part of a very small right, exactly. portion of the world who is opting to go down the path less traveled. Right. Uh, it is not standard. It is not normal. <laughs> yeah. There's a little bit of, of a fashion to it in the past 10 years. But even with the fashion, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's still statistically tiny relative to yeah. most people who have a, a normal day job. Um, <clears throat> it It's not for everybody. And I, I, I personally, I'm not the kind of person who's like, everybody's got to be an entrepreneur. No, not at all. I think that different people have different personalities, different s- skill sets. Yeah. Uh, I have a sister of mine. She's a lawyer and she's very diligent and she would be mortified at the kinds of things <laughs> that I have to do if I asked her to do them. And, she, and I would be mortified to, to do what she's doing for a lifetime. So yeah. each of us is in the right spot. Right, but I've met lots of people who wanted to be entrepreneurs and I've quickly done some troubleshooting for them in terms of like, are you serious or you're not serious? And I think that's a, that's a really important diagnostic to do at the beginning. And, and the sets of questions revolve around something like this. Um, If you've ever had a child, um, when the, when the child is first born, there's no such thing as not keeping your eye on him or her, Mm -hmm. right? Like, If it's an infant, there's literally a mother couldn't even shower without thinking about where's the child going to be. You can't go to the bathroom like it's very intense, and that goes on for like a year or two, where you always have to know where they are. There's no five ten minutes of you have no idea where your kid is. That doesn't exist in year one or two, and so my first question to the person is. Are you ready to have that level of commitment because that's what it is to build a business in your first year or two you at all times need to know where your kid is there's no disappearing (laughs) acts ever you always have to know and you might be a parent and have a lousy day you might be in in you know you might be feeling depressed you might be feeling unhappy you might feel all sorts of negative things you still need to know where your kid is and so this the same (laughs) thing happens with your business and so then I asked, you know, I'll, I'll meet somebody who's used to like a really nice lifestyle okay. and they've it's a little cush and you know, <laughs> yeah. they travel and they have a good time. And I'm like, you want to start business XYZ. I, I just have a question for you. How many times do you travel a year? You know, do you, do you take vacations? How long are your vacations in that first year? If you have a sort of operationally intensive business that still doesn't make enough money to hire a senior operations person. I'd like to know when you leave for three weeks or four weeks to XYZ city, who's sorting this out? And they don't really have a question because they're thinking more along the lines of like two to three months, four months, maybe six, but they're not thinking a year, a year and a half. But by the time you get to month nine and 12 and you're burnt out, you're like, okay, I'm ready for my vacation. But there's Hold on, there's nobody in the back to sort this <laughs> stuff out. So, so you have to have the sort of mental awareness and fortitude to, to be very serious about what you just signed up for for the first year or two. Now, if your business is doing good and, and thriving and growing, it's like the child. You'll, you'll start to find that it takes different de- developmental phases, and it's, it doesn't need you to hawk it at every second. In fact, if you do so, you're micromanaging it. Mm. And then it requires you to have a supporting cast and a community and, you know, the village starts raising your kid a little bit and you can play <laughs> with the other kids and and the rest of it. And it, and it evolves into something that you are not 100 percent consumed by minute by minute. Right. But that takes years. It doesn't take months. And there are some people who might think it's months, but it's not months. It's years. So if the the commitment level on day one is not there, and those points are not clear in the mind of the entrepreneur, they will suffer and they will have a lot of hardships. Uh, People easily sign up to the headlines of, oh, look at that very young person who started a business and sold it for millions of dollars. Statistical anomaly. Mm. Overwhelmingly, businesses are actually started by mature, seasoned people. And overwhelmingly, businesses that do well took years to develop and to create. Historically, even longer to right. create fortunes took a few generations. You know, It took uh, two or three generations of, of family efforts to create a fortune. So fortunately, it, it, you can do it in, within your lifetime. But the idea that it's a quick fix and a flip, that's, that's no go. So that's, that's <laughs> sort of on the patience, timeline, um, realistic expectations front. Then there's the skills side. Um, some folks, they just want to, you know, eyes closed, don't know anything about anything. They just want to jump in. I actually think that's not the best way to do it. Uh, if you were to ask me, I think uh, being in something where you identify a gap and you have a network and you know people and you're working in, a, in a, an environment and a structure, but you saw that there's this area that's being underserviced that's being overcharged, that it has bad experiences, that you now have a network in and have some awareness of how it works and then you jump in and say hey I'm going to go solve that problem. I think that's a better way to 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 have a higher probability of success when you're in something and you're seeing gaps in that marketplace and you jump in. So so those are the kinds of things that when I when I meet somebody who wants to be an entrepreneur, I'm I'm troubleshooting with them and saying, "Hey, where's your head at on these points?" and and then on the individual front, you know, how detail-oriented are you? How careful are you? Do you have the basics? Because any business has some basic functionality. you got to understand accounting. If you don't know how to do accounting, in my book, if you don't know how to do accounting, you, you're not in a position to start a business. If, if you don't have the ability to track your financial comings and goings, if you don't, you don't even know how to determine if you're successful. Mm. If you don't know your unit, unit economics, if you don't know what's coming in and what's coming out, how are you even going to assess whether what you're doing is good or not? And I am astonished by some of the businesses that I've seen here locally. Their their practices on the accounting front are definitely below the standard, as they would say.
1: Interesting. And you mentioned the framework of sort of um, to identify potential uh, like ideas or projects to pursue, experience the pain point, and then based on that, sort of design your business around that. Is that a framework you use to identify so other businesses you worked on?
2: So certainly I, I, I trust my gut to some extent for me to look at something and say, oh, that's really compelling or mm. that's a humongous pain point in my mm. life. Those are good starting points at identifying where there might be an opportunity. But I, I caution anybody to make a case based on just you and your friends, mm. right? Like, oh, I'm going to do this. And all oh, my friends said that they're into this. Mm, your friends are really nice and they're (laughs) they're a friendly audience and they all show up for a little bit at the beginning and then it phases out and that's not a real business a business is in a marketplace a business is when when strangers are willing to open up their wallet and give you money because you've added value to their life and it doesn't have to be consumer-based i think a lot of people on the entrepreneur side forget b2b i think there's Mm. uh, you know there's, there's, there's a big window of possibilities on the B2B side. And so um, certainly I would start with my gut instincts of what do I find missing? What do I care about? But I would ask that very pointed question of is somebody willing to take out money, their hard-earned money, and and part ways with it and give it to you because you've added enough of a value or a service and you're a stranger to them? And if the answer is no,
1: you need to keep thinking. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So so what did your first entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial venture look like?
2: So I would I would in in my particular case and I would actually advise it to other people is that y- you don't have to be a hero on day 1 and you don't have to be the number one man or woman on day one, it's okay to be employee number two or three. You can be the sidekick, you could be the VP, you could be a lot of things at okay. the in- initial parts of your career. Try to line up with somebody who you look up to or you think is now at that pinnacle moment in his or her career where they're gonna nail it and go ride that wave with them and learn, learn on their expense and learn uh, from them lots of skills that you can then take later on and do your own thing when you become the number one uh, guy or girl so So, I worked in you know a handful of entrepreneurial contexts where i wasn't the c e o or i wasn't the the primary founder, and I think that was tremendously helpful because a bunch of them didn't work and and sometimes actually being in the context of th- of something that doesn 't work is a tremendous learning experience and it 's a lot better when you 're not the number one guy and the thing's not working so so there's there's uh, Plenty to be said about it 's okay to be a number two number three number four, whatever that number is, and go into a context where you can learn plenty even if on the equity side you 're not getting all the upside because you 're not the primary person totally okay you 're most you know most likely you 're young and you have a long runway of, of opportunity and and this will just be a first or second or third iteration yeah. so so if you 're young and, and thinking about jumping in way better idea to join forces with with a team that you have confidence in that looks like they know what they're doing spend some time learning professionalism one of the important things is gauging you know gauging is a really important skill set knowing when are you likely to close a deal not likely to close a deal how long is it going to take to implement are the forecasts correct not correct are the expectations realistic or pie in the sky that's it. those are all in the under the umbrella of your ability to gauge that's an experience thing. And the more you see different cycles, different businesses, your ability to gauge gets much more realistic. And so if you look at, oh, when I was 23 and I put together a plan versus I'm 40 and I put together a plan, the second one is far more likely in touch <laughs> with reality in terms of when milestones are hit, in terms of what, how many deals are likely to happen, how much revenue is expected to flow. And the first one is just, just <laughs> cockamamie nonsense. <laughs> and, and so yeah, yeah. Th- that comes from seeing it Seen through so a few times, better. right? Yeah. And so no shame in that. And I think in a tiny little market like Bahrain, mm-hmm. I, ex- I expect and, and think that there should be way more consolidation of efforts. Mm-hmm. I think many more people need to come together and form teams mm-hmm. rather than individualistic efforts because it's a tiny little market. Yeah. We don't need tons of fragmented little you know, half-baked ideas. Right. We need a handful of good ones. Yeah.
1: So so going back to your entrepreneurial ventures, so you so I guess you joined sounds like you're you're sort of nuancing the point that you joined a team, had a manager or, or someone senior that you know you learned a lot from. Uh when did you decide to sort of be the number one guy?
2: So that actually happened when i came to bahrain um when i came to bahrain is when i when i felt like the culmination of all sorts of r- random experiences failures heartaches and pains and <laughs> ups and downs and then i i finally felt like i kind of understand now how to gauge <laughs> <laughs> situations people uh and and also i you know I would I would say to you that being an entrepreneur is like um, it, it's an it, it's an experience of putting a mirror to your face. When you work in a big company or a big law firm or or whatever big organization, it's easy to get lost okay. and be unnoticed or under the radar and no one's paying attention. And there's lots of Subspecialist. somebody's in charge of getting you a Kleenex box to your office. It's not something you have to worry about. Somebody fixes the light bulb. Somebody vacuums at the end of the night. When you become an entrepreneur and you're building f- from scratch, it's all you. Yeah. And, and so go back to the mirror reference. Yeah. You begin to discover what you suck at, yeah. right? Because you have to do everything. you got to understand a little bit about everything. You can't, uh, you can't be clueless because even if you're going to outsource some function you have to be able to know whether you're being conned whether somebody's scamming you whether somebody's overcharging you so cluelessness is no longer an option on almost everything that you do you want to buy a table you got to know how much a table costs you want to you want to uh, do advertising you need to know how do you get a prop, how do you measure the, the the return on that investment so there's no more Ah, I'm just a lawyer, I write briefs and I write reports and you know, I'm an account manager, I just make sure that the numbers are correct and that's it. And I go to home and I sleep. You have to know a little bit about everything. And every time you dive into a new area you don't know about, you gotta sit there and Google it and get the sort of the primary points understood and learned and talk to like five people who know a little bit about that. Ask 10 questions to each one of them until you know, you know, get your head out of the sand. Mm-hmm. So, So if you don't do that and you're at the beginning stages, you start to see the really troubling things in the mirror. Yeah. I'm kinda lazy, <laughs> or I really hate doing X, Y, Z, or I'm not willing to do that, or what, you
1: know. What, what did you learn about yourself during the process?
2: Oh, loads of things, <laughs> but I mean, I, I've, I've, I've touched on a couple of them. Um, first the 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 issue of emotional quotient mm-hmm. of, of you know m- my nature being more on the military side of things Project. it's a hierarchy you know everybody just listens to the boss and that's the end of the story and i never had a problem with it like yeah. if my boss was that way towards me it seemed to it, it was fine for me he's like yeah. he paid my salary he gets what he wants <laughs> and that's the end of the story yeah. i discovered i'm an anomaly most yeah. people don't operate that way and so fixing myself to be a much better communicator yeah. way more empathetic yeah way more understanding of the other person's needs, getting buy-in from everybody, especially creative types, um, and 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 not being domineering, letting the conversation exist within your team because otherwise the business relies just on your creativity, which is it's, not enough. Yeah, you want the creativity of everybody. And so, you know, and the, the importance of accounting. I, I mentioned that because of messing things up. I was a lawyer, not an accountant. And so... Uh, getting the pieces tracked correctly from day one helps you build your story correctly, helps you understand the metrics correctly, helps it be auditable, helps it be sellable it 's nothing but good mm-hmm. so so those are those were hard lessons that I learned also learning a little bit about who sticks around who doesn 't stick around mm-hmm. um, who 's in it for what reason. Mm-hmm. You begin to gauge partnership and employees and senior employees you have a different understanding of who's serious with you who's who how do you get incentives aligned how do you make sure that people are not selling you a a, a fake story of what they're willing to do and then you know they run out of gas really quickly so so getting all of those things understood took a long time of of trial and error and seeing lots of 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 things go sideways and sour and I would encourage anybody who who goes through this kind of stuff to to understand it's part of the process it's messy and not to not to let it bog you down or feel negative about it and you'll make mistakes and there'll be people who'll judge you for that and be like, "Oh, what you did wasn't artful or wasn't the best way okay but i'm carving out and doing pioneering work right like it's it's you're you're there's the, the famous quote of the man in the arena. Right. Like there's there's a guy fighting the lion in the arena and there's a, there's thousands of people around. They get to put thumbs up and thumbs down. Yeah. But you're not fighting in the arena. <laughs> <laughs> so you're just critics.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's easy yeah that's it. easy. Yeah.
0: And I would imagine that it's a, it never stops. It's not something that you reach. Like when you start a business. Can you ever really say, okay, now I made it or are you always working on something? Are you always working on improving something?
2: Well, I think there there's a bit of a compulsiveness to entrepreneurs where, you know, you're oh, you you have a hard time just saying, okay, we're done. <laughs> you know, that's re- rarely the case. There's always like, well, why haven't we just kind of tried that or right. why haven't we improved that? And and you're always putting new targets and new goals of what you can do. And and if you feel like you've conquered what's in front of you, you're like, well, why don't we do the same thing in the next country? You know. Right. So so it's there's there's certainly no shortage of possibilities in a big world. You 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 keep motivating yourself by co- creating new targets and yeah. new goals for you and your team. Um, and and if you're if you're you know, normally a lot of entrepreneurs have a, a bit of a, a compulsive perfectionist thing to them because it's just like, no, 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 that's not good enough. Go back and do it better. No, 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 I'm not okay with a client feeling that way towards mm-hmm. our company or our business. Go talk to them and make sure that they feel fine and deliver to them what, the, what it is that they need. That attitude is restless that there's a restlessness to that person to some extent but that madness is what drives to some extent the success right because the average person is like "Eh, it's just one guy he didn't like it the hell with him right but that attitude is not likely to be the biggest winner
0: yeah and that's the reason i asked because i think it's important to keep in mind that it's once you start a business it never really ends it's not that you're gonna reach somewhere and then it's gonna get easier and I think that's for me, for example, whenever I start thinking of, you know, starting anything, I remind myself of that. It's a commitment for, you know, the foreseeable future. It's until it never stops. It's not, you know, I'm gonna achieve this and then I'm done. And then I have this thing that I can be proud of. It's something that stays with you.
2: It's a kid. <laughs> it's and a kid. the only time you're done is when you sell it, nice. which is the equivalent of your kid getting a job. <laughs> that's the only time you're done. Perfect,
1: that's yeah. perfect <laughs> metaphor. And that being said, I think it is possible to design a business um, to operate without you effectively if you're good at, you know, or if that's a, a, something you want, that's a goal you want to achieve. So, I don't think most entrepreneurs are geared that way.
2: So so, I think you're right. Uh, it, it depends on what you're doing. And um, you, you may... Transfer from being sort of an entrepreneur into more of an investor. Mm -hmm. That might happen if you're successful. You you may not want to continue very operationally intensive. You might end up investing in businesses. Um, That's a possibility. Um, But me personally, for example, I I you know the the businesses that I currently invest in, uh, I'm actually not that operational. Uh, I found that my value is in something different. And uh, I found partners and, and team members who are great at operations. And I focused more on, on, on business development, on closing deals, on uh, getting uh, uh, expansion ideas, getting more clients. And let, sort of one person is doing the hunting and the other person is doing the cooking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that's great. Actually, lots of people should be thinking that way of of finding again because i believe in consolidating efforts as a tiny market there's no reason for one person to do everything um, find people who complement you and uh, you 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 will find your life is better when you're doing things that you're enjoying and your partner is doing the things that they enjoy and it's complimentary between the two of you uh, that's a huge win and and it can help you not feel that you're you're all the weight is on you and all these things that you don't feel like doing you have to do because somebody else doesn't mind doing some of those things because their personality matches that or their skills match that. So you can get your business to evolve in a way where your, the requirements of you are more aligned with what you enjoy doing.
1: So, so what was your idea when you came to Bahrain? What uh, what did you decide to pursue? <laughs> um, honestly, it was uh, I, I had a tough. Uh,
2: two and a half years in Saudi, and I thought to myself, I will live in Bahrain and manage my Saudi businesses from Bahrain. <laughs> okay. But when I came, I really loved Bahrain, and I and, and Bahrain became my <laughs> primary focus, actually. Um, and uh, I I never looked back. So, so it was sort of accidental more than anything. Interesting. Yeah.
1: Interesting. So tell us specifically, like, what was the idea? What? Uh, what, uh, what
2: the, so the first business that I had in Bahrain was when I came, I uh, I sort of canvassed around and sort of I, I do I, I do a lot of sort of guerrilla on the ground investigative you know findings before I do anything I'm the type of guy who's like going to the shop and chit-chatting with the cashier and yeah. be like you know who's coming what's going on how much do you sell what are the problems you got how much are you getting paid you know all these little things and it's amazing with just sort of a smile and friendliness. People will share all sorts of information with you about what's going on. So getting getting the landscape was very important for me. Um, but what, what actually specifically happened is when I came, the economy was doing really well. This was like 2014, 15, much better than what it is or where it is today, certainly in the F&B side. Um, but... In short, I saw that there is this uh, U.S. Navy presence in Jufair, mm-hmm. and there was a shortage of, of Mexican food concepts. And uh, I, living in the United States, loved Chipotle. I used to go fanatically. And, um, and I'm like, why is there no Chipotle here? This makes no sense, like even a local concept of yeah. Chipotle. And so when I saw uh, that the U.S. Uh, presence was here, and that there wasn't really any Chipotle concept, I'm like, that's what we gotta do. And so uh, 500 meters from the base, we built a Chipotle equivalent, which was Burrito Loco. And you know, <laughs> now we're several I locations agree. later.
1: So you specifically targeted, you had that target audience in mind and, and sort of assumed you'd have that market at least.
2: Yeah. So so. I I, def, I didn't build with only them in mind, mm-hmm. but I built with them as as being sort of in the worst case. If nobody likes this food, <laughs> at least I have them, and this is not a disaster. Yeah, yeah. But then it turned out there there was like a Mexican food renaissance in the past five years, and lots of people opened up, and 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 there's a the the taste bud has adjusted to it, and I I was always convinced that it would right because I'm like there's rice, there's bread, there's meat, like right. there's you know there's a lot of the foundational things that are that we're comfortable with here. Um, and, I, you know, I was astonished by by the uptake of, of folks outside of the Americans, the locals and all sorts of different diverse communities and groups uh, going through Jufair were were turning into customers. So um, that's what got us started. But we started out of the smallest little space. And when I saw it, uh, most people thought it was a storage facility. Like it, they didn't even think that this could be turned into something. We had to, like, beg the Ministry of Health to convince them to, to allow us to get started there. So... So, you know, I I I I made sure to to make my risk parameters tight because when you start a business and it's still new, you don't want to overshoot and overspend. You want learnings and be patient and it's okay. And so I kept my expenses controlled and I kept my the space small. And I said, you know what, if if it was too small relative to the success, that's okay. but it's better than being a massive failure, especially at the beginning stages. And so I kept, I, I said, I'll take it, and I took it, and, and, uh, and it worked. So, so it, was, it was really a reflection of, of finding something that I thought the market didn't have. It was a gap. And I had a foundational sort of backbone client that I knew was right across uh, 500 meters away. So between the two of them, I felt quite confident with, with, with what we were doing.
1: I, you make, I love how you make it sound so simple. Oh, no, no, it's not simple. <laughs> nothing simple about it but
2: i i i I would say we had a we had a a a remarkable experience because i arrived to bahrain in july 2014 and i opened the restaurant early november 2014
1: sorry when when did you get to bahrain july
2: 2014 that's fast i opened november and when i arrived i didn't know anybody and i didn't know anything no way so where there's a will there's a way
1: that's incredible (laughs) wow and then you went from there to, to explore, I guess, the different concepts. I guess you liked like the the space yeah, so, you're working in. So
2: we saw we saw that there was potential for sort of fresh fast food, um, and so we opened up more burrito locos. We opened up in Chobar. Um, we got into different cuisines like Asian and sushi with Noodle Walk. Uh, we built food trucks. We made the Sandwich Guys food truck. So we did we did a lot of other things. But uh, today I feel like there's Really high saturation uh, in the market in the local marketplace. That's not where. If somebody came to me and said, well, "You know, sh- I'm thinking of opening up a little restaurant," I'd be like, mm, "Think really hard." In in 2015, um, mediocre players were doing okay, uh, and uh, best of players were killing it. Today, best of players are doing okay, and mediocre players are struggling if barely surviving so so the dynamics are such that if you're not a top 10 20 performer you're not surviving in in the B right now and so it's not an exciting place to be i think it's oversaturated and some of the problems that come from it is you know some some good intentions go wrong the government has supported a lot of startup businesses through agencies that that they have with with different funding sources which is a phenomenal thing, conceptually an amazing thing. But one of the problems is they do it indiscriminately, which I understand, which has a sensibility to it. But that indiscriminate aspect to it doesn't necessarily fuel people filling gaps in the marketplace because they're taking very low risk bets. And so they might be just all going into the same thing. So you end up with a hundred new burger restaurants that have no business being alive, right? Because people are opening them with very limited risk propositions, but they weren't filling gaps in a marketplace. So I think we need to be a little bit more careful about directing resources and support to companies that are actually fulfilling a gap rather than just a person Great. who wants to open something.
1: I'm, I'm just I'm going to get you some more tea. I'll be back in a second. Sonora. I'm going to hand over to you.
0: I think that's I think that's a very important it's I like that you're honest about this because you know especially with the hype of starting a business and as you mentioned at some point that it it has become a trend in the past few years everybody wants to open up a business it seems like the the cool thing to do in terms of you know making something of yourself or making a name for yourself but at the same time it's it's nice to have this kind of honesty from somebody who's tried it so personally I appreciate this kind of honesty because nobody ever says it as it is you know they try to sugarcoat it so I just appreciate yeah. that honesty. well, I,
2: I appreciate that I, I would say to you though that there's a really big difference between folks who have a job and they kind of like dabble in something on the side Right, right. there's lots of that in this part of the world <laughs> like a guy just has a job and he kind of dabbles in something on the side and then his underemployed cousin kind of takes care of it for him and like, that's, not, that's, that's fine if, if that's working for you and generating a bit of income. Right. But, but a real business that is scalable, that can turn into something that is, that is, that is you know, meaningfully sized takes a lot more dedication and, and, and is a full-time effort and is an, is an obsession and love affair. And if that's not there, then it's very hard to make that work. Right,
1: right. That's amazing. Do you have anything? Uh, just so, so you know, that's ginger uh, tea, cold brew. Uh, this is too all too. the tea yeah, Sinan had earlier, and we have some cookies, so have yourself.
2: Should we do so crunching sounds with the cookies get Get it. Turn everybody off quickly. Actually, you never know who might be listening. Try, <laughs> try <laughs> I didn't know we had the cookie monster on the line, but...
1: So, yeah, what... What are some unexpected things you learned about the FNB industry? I, I mean, so
2: I'll tell you about, uh, you know, really funny experiences that I've had handling clients, and um, I've I've tried to teach people on my team how to do this effectively, <laughs> and and uh, it, it's really interesting. I'll get a phone call because I, I personally like to talk to the clients a lot of times. As much as I can, I try to call clients, especially the pissed off ones. And, amazing, so, amazing. I love that. and so, and so the 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 client will start with something like this. Um, today I came and it was everything was terrible, and uh, I I found a, a stone in my food, a little rock, and and I'm going to report you, and I'm going to get your restaurant shut down. I'm going to send pictures on Twitter, and I'm going to you know this is horrible, and and they just go on and on and on and on, and. I'm just extremely patient and calm, and I never take it personally. I literally talk to them in the most polite, respectful way. And uh, and I say this meaningfully, but I, I tell them, you know, I, I deeply apologize for what you experience. It's not acceptable. We're going to go and do a full investigation of what happened, and which we actually do, and make sure... Um, We check the batches. We check what happened. Was it a supplier problem, a vendor problem? Was it after the food was made problem? Was it the customer himself made the problem? Like, we investigate everything. And so, through the process of not taking it personally and not being defensive and letting the other person vent and hearing them out, because so many of the times they're having a bad day, um, they wanted a delivery to come faster and it didn't come fast enough and they just came back from from work hungry and now they're hangry and, <laughs> and, and you, have to, you, you are their punching bag or they're fighting, with, they're fighting with their husband but they can't yell at their husband so they'll yell at you. So you, have, you don't know the number of dynamics that are going on in that person's life. But I have had conversations where the starting point of the conversation is somebody who's pissed off at the world and he's taking it out on me by saying he's going to shut down my restaurant and finishing the conversation with the person saying, no, 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 I, I don't mean it like that. I love your restaurant. I'm such a regular. Me and my friends go all the time. I, 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 I'm I, not that kind of client. I don't want that free food that you're offering me. I absolutely, I'm not that kind of person. I so much appreciate this phone call. No, 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 you don't know how much this means to me. I'm going to tell everybody about this great customer experience. And I'm just thinking to myself, I'm like literally at the beginning of this call, this person was trying to shut me down. And so you cannot believe the power of of great customer service and making the customer right and making the customer feel like he or she is king or queen. And so so, uh, teaching my team how to handle it that way where your natural instincts might be to tell the customer that they made a mistake. Like, did you notice that maybe you did that? Did you, hey, you know, or be defensive? No, we did not do any such thing. Our company doesn't do that. I'm not here to debate and argue yeah, yeah. with the client. Yeah. The, the client is not here for, for a debate squad, right? right. They're, they're coming to us for satisfaction. They're giving us money. Somebody's decided to take money out of their wallet and give it to us for satisfaction. Now, whether that satisfaction is coming in the context of a food item, whether it's coming in a smile, whether it's coming in, there was a problem and we solved it to their delight, it's satisfaction that they are buying. And so, so learning how to pause the ego and not be defensive and not argue with them, but on the contrary, understand their pains, understand their problem. And reassure them, and 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 give them a genuine sense of the seriousness by which you take their concerns. You find yourself getting somebody more committed to your business than before the problem occurred.
0: Right. Um, there was this book that I read. I had to read once for for something that I was doing, but it's, it's called the Four Agreements, and it's a very simple book. But one of the it talks about four four rules to live by I guess and the first one is don't take anything personally and it's so simple like it's just it's a simple sentence it's not it's not anything phenomenal but once you start applying it whether it's in your business or in your life it's just it's a life changer because it really allows you to take a step back and you know reevaluate what's going on before responding and I think that's something that we lack and that's why we get defensive and that's why we fight with people that's why we A lot of the time, you know, people are not angry with us. They're just angry. Yeah. And so it's not anything personal, especially when you own a business. Mm -hmm. Why would someone hate me? They don't know me. Why would they be angry with me as a person? They're not angry with me as a person. So it's hard to get yourself in that mentality. And I think, you know, you've achieved that. And that's just amazing.
2: There there are other funny cultural dynamics I can tell you about. (laughs) Um, You know, I'm very to the point and, and not very long winded more than I need to be. Certainly, the West has tr- sort of trained me to get to the mm-hmm. point quickly. Um, but there are some funny situations that I bumped into here where I remember uh, somebody sent me an email and it was really long. <laughs> but inside of the email, there was just one statement that required a response, right? So it was just like, and can we meet on such and such date, or is such and such time okay with you? But inside of the email, there was lots of points addressed and lots of discussion items addressed. But none of them, there were no questions. There was nothing posed as a question, and so I just replied, "Okay," to the one to the to the, just that final point at the bottom, and they were distraught. Like yeah. they were they were expecting that I give them like a, a Ph.D. dissertation <laughs> response to their email like like because they made that email i have to make something similar in return so you know and 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 similar to that there there are folks that i've 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 chatted with on whatsapp where like two or two or three days after a long whatsapp chat i i needed to reignite the conversation and i just jumped in with like continuation questions to the (laughs) conversation and they're like excuse me like no hello no like it? good morning like no introduction what we're doing? yeah and, I, and you know you just never know the sensitivities of the people you're working with and so now i'm like okay so first i have to read what i send for like grammatical mistakes and then i have to give it another read to make sure that it's fluffy enough you know like it's it has to have enough of the hellos and the how are you's and and this part of the world is important you gotta know what cultural okay. dynamic that you're in so now now, you know, I always have introductory comments and conclusionary comments yeah. and signing off. And so yeah, you, I learned the hard way.
0: Yeah, that's that's really interesting because I mean, we could learn to be a little more direct. But at the same time, as you said, it's just important to the culture. So I guess, you know, you accommodate it. Well, you
2: you see when people uh, meet each other, they can spend two minutes (laughs) with introductory comments. You know, how's your family? How was your dad's lunch? And and, uh, (laughs) And then like 15 statements later, it's like, do you have the document? Yeah, yeah, here you go. You take the document, the guy walks off. But it's like literally lots of commentary before it happens.
1: It sounds like you're, excuse me. It sounds like you're enjoying the experience of living in the Middle East. Is it? Um, do you see yourself living here for a while?
2: Um, so, I mean, I, I really like Bahrain. Just to give a shout out to Bahrain in particular. <laughs> no offense to anybody else. But Bahrain is, a, is like a really pleasant place to be. It's a really easy place to be. Mm. I can always see myself having something to do with Bahrain because it's, just, it's, it's not a hard place to live. Uh, I feel very relaxed, very free. Um, things things are 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 functional. Uh, it's a great place overall. I think every place has ways that it can improve, but I, I overall think that it's a great place. Um, you know, what where my future lies? You know, that's hard to say because there's a lot of variables of what goes on in the universe, right? Things that I don't control, right? Yeah. There's there are big, you know, the the folks who are living in. Different countries across the Middle East made a lot of plans and, and it didn't pan out for them, right? So I, I, I don't know what's going to happen exactly. And, and, and there's, there's certainly enough question marks to leave some doubts. Um, but in the short to medium term, I, I see things working and I see opportunities. And and even if at this particular moment we, we have a bit of a um, uh, you know, less than inspiring uh, economic climate, uh, I, I think on the contrary wh- where you have um, tougher economies is you have a greater likelihood of finding good businesses coming out because in a great economy a lousy idea might make it just because everything's is is roaring but in in tougher times you actually have to have a good idea because people are much more cautious and and um, businesses won't deal with you unless you're really really good or you know if you're a restaurant you won't succeed unless you're a top performer so so i I think that um, a lot of good businesses can come out of tougher times and uh, and then if you if you are able to to make a business model that works in tougher times when good times come then you can really do well so i'm I'm not uh, downish on on that I just hope that the overall environment is functional enough for all of us to thrive um, and I'm I hope that the the structural and societal changes uh, that we're beginning to see uh, continue on that path because I I would see a a, quite a bright future if 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 we decide as a society here that we got to do better and we we have to we we have to bring greater awareness we have to change how we think about uh, who we are and what we represent to the world and our place in the world and I think if that happens the opportunity set is enormous and again back to the beginning where transitional societies are where all the exciting things happen
1: i love it yeah i really hope so too um yeah when when talking to you silan i feel like you know it could go on for ages but um i have a you know parting question that i'm really curious genuinely curious to hear about um so from the outside i think it's easy to look at you and, and get the impression like you're a guy who has everything figured out uh what what challenges are you working on? What areas do you feel like, um, is there something, do you, do you feel like there are areas as you're still working on uh, growth in terms of growth or personal development?
2: Well, one growth I'm trying to fight against is my belly, but <laughs> but that's a problem of getting closer to 40.
1: <laughs> that's a big struggle. <laughs> no
2: matter what I do, it's stubborn. It, that, that's one area that loves to grow. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I would say this. I, I, I'm glad you brought that up, and, and I, I'll, I'll try to answer that question even in a, in a broader context, which is I think there's something wrong with what's happening today with, with sort of modern society and culture, with, with the Instagram mm. universe of looking at other people and thinking that their lives are better. And if you just continue down that path of listening to somebody who's you know has a silver tongue or watching somebody on their feeds and all they do is vacation in fancy places, you're gonna go mad and you're gonna think you know the universe is against you. everybody somehow has a struggle because there's a constant adjustment that everybody has to their condition and environment and the and the way I would describe it is it's like you're playing chess against a computer, and the computer is constantly adjusting the degree of difficulty so that you are suffering a little bit. <laughs> That's life in a nutshell. are I I on point today. Yeah, I love So emotions. the second you think you're getting clever, the second you think you're really smart, you're really handsome, the degree of difficulty goes up, and then you're back to square one, and you're like, Dan, this thing is really hard, and you know, I, I don't know what the hell I'm doing, and I'm lost and confused so so i caution very strongly against comparing yourself to anybody and thinking that you know oh that guy looks like he's got it all figured out definitely no is the answer uh everybody no matter who they are some point wakes up with like deep existential questions why am i here what the heck am i doing does this make sense i'm not happy with this how do i change it this person's making me suffer this person causes me pain points you know it's inevitable it's the human condition and so i'm not immune to that nobody is and on the contrary i think if if you look at what makes human beings desirable what what makes human beings likable is actually the exposure of the vulnerability and the culture of of instagram perfection is actually the most unlikable thing ironically we like it all day online but in reality it's not (laughs) (laughs) likable but the the reality is we like we like things that make us feel familiar that that make us feel human that make us feel vulnerable those those are the qualities that when we see them in other people we feel affinity towards them and if you see somebody who's just seems perfect they actually seem kind of unattainable or untouchable which is not a good way to connect Mm -hmm. so so i don't i don't think that Anybody should look at anybody else and think that their lives are great or perfect. Chances are it's not, uh, and certainly mine is not. Um, I, I struggle with with many things that are challenging. You know, we touched on some of the the points of you know if you're if you're if you don't squarely belong to a particular place or a community, that's a struggle by itself. Trying to figure out then what what are you, where do you belong, and how do you fit in? Yeah. Those are those are challenges. What is your identity when you have, you know multiple nationalities multiple places where you grew up multiple cultures that you lived in that you grew up in that you were raised in those are one big you know cluster dot 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 it's it's a it's a challenge to navigate through them and navigate parents that have certain expectations relatives community uh coworkers all of them with different dynamics so so those are those are hard things that you have to 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 overcome, including your shortcomings. You know, you have inclinations that might not be good. You might be, you know, you might be insensitive. You might be not as uh, understanding as you should be, not as patient as you should be. So we have a struggle. Everybody has their uh, hand-picked select items of things that are not where they should be that they got to work on. And so uh, I would rather remind myself of my shortcomings than than any good things that I have done and keep humble and, and try to work on improving the areas where I'm lousy on and there's no shortage of them.
1: (laughs) Beautiful.
0: Yeah, I think that's a beautiful note to end on. Uh, Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Uh, This was a very, very, what's the word? It was a very rich conversation. Uh, Very eye-opening, I think, to me at least because you've talked about some things that I needed to hear today, especially, which is weird. It was like they're reminders of things, especially, you know, when you talked about um, l- being okay with, you know, not being first and listening to others and using people's experiences and being okay with that. That's part of being humble, which you just mentioned. And so for me personally, thank you for being here. I learned a lot today. Yeah.
1: Thanks. Are there any parting thoughts or comments you want to leave us with?
2: Of course, it's my pleasure, and thank you guys for having me. I, I appreciate it, and I commend you on your efforts and what you guys are doing. It's really important to have uh, young people trying to uh, get their voices heard, and, and we live in a society where the the vast majority of the society is young people, and getting those voices out there so, so that we know what are the needs and, and the interests of, of the future generations is critical. So what you guys are are doing, I think, is... Is extremely important. I commend you for for doing so. Keep it up.
1: Thank you. Thank
2: you. My pleasure.
0: Thanks for tuning in. Please follow us on Twitter at unboxed underscore podcast or visit our website.
1: Our website is unboxedpodcast.com. Um through our website you can message us directly. You can also see a uh, history of all of our podcast episodes. We're also available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify.
0: And also, please feel free to contact us via email at hello at unboxedpodcast.com. Thank you.
1: We'd love to hear from you. See ya.
0: See ya.